Professors FM. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the Fanalytics Podcast. Mike Lewis and Doug Battle brought to you by Emory's Marketing Analytics Center. Doug, your lighting looks better than mine today. I think it's just my face, Mike. Okay, maybe it's the allergies. The, I look a little tired. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, okay. I got that pep in my step because it's uh, the final four week and I'm glowing, Mike. Okay, glowing I over got here. a B12 shot or something. <laughs> Uh, okay, so it is Final Four week, Doug. Very different from last year's Final Four. Last year's Final Four was Kansas, North Carolina, Villanova, and Duke. This yeah. year's Final Four are some other guys. I know, yeah, some other guys. Uh, right when I think that I changed my strategy up because I have this habit of always picking the craziest scenarios, wanting to be the one person that picked it. And there's been so many years, like last year, where it's Villanova and Kansas and Duke and UNC, where you're like, you know what, maybe it is the one and two seeds, and that's how I'm going to win the bracket. So this year, I went heavy on that. And uh, I'm not alone, though, Mike. Only 37 of 20 million ESPN brackets are have a perfect Final Four. And I'm not saying that's a perfect bracket. I'm saying a perfect Final Four. So that's 0.000185% who picked FAU, UConn, San Diego State, and Miami in their final four. I'm assuming each of those people made about 72 brackets. I can't even imagine that there are any with that final four. Yeah. Yeah. So we got three teams that are in their first final four ever. And then UConn, which is like, UConn's kind of a staple, but it, I mean, it's been since 2014 since they mm -hmm. made a big run in the tournament. And so I don't think anyone expected UConn to make the run that they have. FAU is going to play in front of more people in the final four than they've played in front of the entire season. <laughs> if you add up all the games in, the, in their home stadium, um, San Diego state, another one, I know them because of Kawhi Leonard, uh, but you know, not necessarily a team that anyone was really high on going into this. And Miami is a team that trailed Drake 56 to 53 in the first round with two minutes left uh, was not, the face of the ACC, you know, not a team that ran their conference this year, and they made it to the Elite Eight last year. That's that's a team that seems to turn it on come tournament time. So one of my takeaways, and you know, I'm not going to take credit for this. Adrian Theory, Emory student, uh, who, who sent me over some numbers. Between these four teams, Mike, there are ten fifth year seniors, and there are four fourth year juniors. So there's a bit of a COVID effect in this year's tournament where, and I think we saw this in college football with 25-year-old Stetson Bennett kind of running the show where there's some level of parity that comes from these small, well, of course, this isn't, <laughs> this isn't college football. Um, what I'm talking about here is with college basketball, some of these small teams have those upperclassmen where you have the 24, 23, 24-year-olds competing against 18-year-olds at Kentucky. And maybe that gives that levels the playing field a bit. And, um, you know, teams like FAU, teams like San Diego State uh, have a better shot this year. Maybe we should have seen this coming. Look, I'm going to admit, I'm going to admit that I got something wrong, right? Yeah. When NIL was going down, I thought we were going to see this concentration of power. Now, you know, when NIL and the, uh, and the transfer portal was, was relaxed, I thought we were going to see 
extreme movement towards the the blue bloods and both the to the elite schools. I think we have seen that in football. I mean, it's it's relatively new, but it seems like we're seeing that solidify in college football, but not at all in college basketball. And it is, it's a very college basketball has something strange going on, right? And I mean, you as a Georgia fan have seen, you know, during Tom Crean's disastrous time in Athens, you know, they were probably had the most folks transferring in and out every year, but this is everywhere now. I think everyone is like ready to lose three to four guys and bring in three to four guys every year. And so is this, and again, one year, kind of a a blip of a data point, but are we moving towards this where college basketball has this set of rules makes college basketball all about parity? Well, it makes college football all about sort of dominant programs that are the, the brands that are locked in and will always be competing for the college football title. I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, college football, I think we know. We're not seeing this in college football. We're not seeing, oh, you know, Sanford is getting some upperclassmen and therefore they're able to compete with Georgia. Like that doesn't happen <laughs> in that sport. Uh, but with basketball... You know, a lot of these freshmen, these freshman phenoms, which is really what it's all about when you're talking about the talent, like the kind of lopsided recruiting, these guys are tending to disappear in the tournament. This year, Brandon Miller at Alabama, one of the, maybe the top college basketball player this year, 28 points across three games in the tournament. He went eight for 41 shooting and three for 19 from three. Um and so, and you look across the board, like Nick Smith Jr. at Arkansas, he went two for 10 against Kansas. That's another top prospect. Keontae George at Baylor shot three for 19 in the tournament. And so, you know, I, I think that teams that are relying too heavily on these younger players who maybe don't have the composure of some of the upperclassmen that we see at like FAU, San Diego State, UConn, and Miami. I think that that's what's giving parity. And I got those numbers from Adrian Theory again, trying to discern whether the tournament is a good indicator of NBA success. Looking over the years, seeing, is this, you know, with the NFL, we look at, we talk about the Parcells rules and do quarterbacks, are they winning games in college? Are they playing enough years? Are they playing with basketball? I don't know that there's a set standard of rules for determining that. And so something I've been curious about is like, do the scouts, do they put too much emphasis in the tournament? Do they look at a guy and say, wow, he really came alive in the tournament. He's got the clutch gene and, and run with it and draft him too high. Or do they let off on a guy because he had a poor outing in the tournament and didn't show up in a big game? And that player, you know, it was just a, the player was always going to regress to the mean. And so that's something I'm looking at this year with a guy like Brandon Miller. Does he fall in the draft after disappearing in the tournament? Uh, Keontae George, Nick Smith Jr. And Adrian raised a good point to the contrary. There's been plenty of examples of these top prospects who performed very well in the tournament. Kevin Durant. Uh, we talked last week about Anthony Davis, you know, DeMarcus Cousins, Chris Paul, Carmelo Carmel Anthony, Kevin Love. You can go down the line. There's been plenty of success stories. Stephen Curry, a guy who really put his name on the map uh, and br- brought his school to the map. I think you have to look at the sort of different eras in all this, yeah. right? Yeah. You know, there's there's an iconic picture of Michael Jordan still in, you know, it says the Jordan brand continues with a movie, a movie of his, a movie, what is that, what is that called? A, a cinnamon cream. 
<laughs> yeah, no, sorry. I said a, a movie about his shoes. Yeah, a movie about his shoes, right? And you know, but I always this isn't that. the first movie about his shoes, like yeah. Mike. Yeah, but I I just think of you know the picture of like him cutting down the net, right? And it's like you know, so we've gone through that era where tournament success was was everything to uh, you know the 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 era where you know people went straight from high school to the to the pros to the the one and dones. And you know, as you're talking, I pulled up one of the mock drafts. I think this is from NBC sports and you know, their number one projected player is, uh, is uh Wemby, you know, the uh, French player. Yeah. Um, then they have Scoot Henderson playing yep. G league ignite. Yep. Then you've got Amen Thompson from overtime elite. Uh, it's, and it's only when you get to Brandon Miller, know. Brandon Miller at uh, in, in Alabama yeah. at number yeah. four, and then um, number six is a is a is a player from 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 Houston. So, you know, I suspect that we've also seen a a rapid hollowing out of the you know the NBA with some of the G League stuff has rapidly hollowed out college basketball on top of the and again you know the, the like the level of transferring in college basketball at this point is just strange. Yeah. Right. I mean that that needs to reach some sort of equilibrium because it's not doing anyone any favors. It's not doing the players favors. It's not doing the programs flavor favors. It's not doing the the sport, the industry any favors. Um Doug, I, I looked it up here as well that um <coughs> excuse me, allergy season that that last year's um Duke North Carolina game, which, you know, special circumstances, right, of Coach K's final final game drew 17.6 million people. And then the championship game was about 16 or 17 million people. What do you think this final four comes? <laughs> I don't, it's like, I, there's two sides to it because on the one hand, you don't have those UNC Duke fan bases, those staples, which by the way, I think those schools spend a lot of resources trying to recruit the Scoot Hendersons of the world. And I think it's killing them to be competing against the G League, to be competing against foreign leagues and pour your resources and, and your time and energy where you could be recruiting a top college level player, but you're going after a professional level player and they end up deciding to go to the pros. And now you're stuck having to take the second pick of the college players. And so I think that's part of what's going on. But with, with those schools out of the mix, Someone like me that doesn't have a, a dog in the fight, I'm actually more interested. I'm more interested in the Final Four this year because one of FAU, UConn, San Diego State, and Miami is going to win a national championship. Okay. Let, me, let me put something out there and you can react to it. So here's where I think the structure of college basketball fandom looks like. You've got, you got your diehards. And I think you used to be kind of in the diehard territory where it's like, you know, I got a team. My team is Duke. My team is UCLA. I also, you know, hate Kentucky. This kind of, this kind of individual that that pays attention all year or, or largely (laughs) pays attention all year. Then you've got this, this group of people that is all about the brackets, right? Sports gambling, there's nothing better for increasing engagement. Suddenly I've got a little bit, uh, and it's not even the dollars, right? There's a competition all along the lines. I'm at the office, family bragging rights. And, uh, you know, and the first day of the tournament, it's great, right? It's like, it's built for engagement. I got Cinderella's. And and then maybe I got 
Well, and, and, and maybe those are the two sort of core fan bases to that are going to come out for for this. And so if everyone's bracket is broken, you know, are they still coming out for this? Yeah. And if, you know, the the big dogs sort of the glamour brands are gone. And and look, the look, Duke brings Duke fans, it also brings folks that want to see Duke lose. They hate Duke, yeah. It's like and LeBron. I wanna, yeah. I want to see FAU beat Duke, right, to win yeah. this championship. So, and again, it's just a just a production projection where where do we come in relative to last year with sort of this iconic college basketball figure uh, 10 12 it'll be interesting to see um, it'll be interesting to see um something that i've always i've always lost interest as the tournament goes on because i don't have a dog in the fight and so your bracket in those first two rounds is at its best you have a you have a dog in the fight in that sense and then the Cinderella's tend to burn out come the Sweet 16 after those first two rounds. So I've always been a proponent of the first two rounds being the best part of the basketball season. And I lose interest. I kind of tune out come the Elite Eight unless like Virginia or, or some some team that I have some sort of tie to is in it. Or like you said, Duke, if I want to see them lose to UMBC or St. Mary's or who, whatever team is in there. and uh, and so. You know, but Adrian brought up another statistic for me that kind of makes me interested in the Final Four this year. And it's that the uh, the average round point differentials, I was telling him, I was saying, it seems like the games are more of blowouts as the tournament goes on, which is kind of counterintuitive uh, because when a 16 is playing a one, you expect that to be a blowout. And then when a one is playing a two, you expect that to be a close game. But it seems like the Final Four, we've seen more blowouts. Um, and this year, it's felt like the Elite Eight. But it's actually not the case this year. Uh, average point differential in each round. First round was 11.78. Second round, ten or 11.25. Third round, 10.25. And Elite Eight, 9.75. And so, in that sense, it's like, there's more likely to be a buzzer beater or overtime or the, the type of game that causes a lot of buzz on social and then causes people to tune in. That's another element where just the closeness of the games can draw interest. So there, there's kind of a push and pull here and we'll, we'll find out next week. I definitely want to look at the numbers after the final four and see kind of where we came in. But like you said, you know, it's not going to be as high as it was for Duke UNC. That's no, just not going to happen. It just can't happen. Right. Yeah. And it, 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 I mean, and that's, that was sort of magic. That, I mean, coming out of COVID, that was really about the best case scenario for for college basketball to have Duke versus UNC. Right. Uh, this year, again, I'm like, I'm, in some ways, I'm I'm just like struggling to get my mind around it. I will. I'm absolutely going to be fascinated by the way this number comes in on the TV ratings. I mean, and in a way, it's kind of it's kind of sad that I'm more interested in the number on the TV ratings than I am in uh, in, in, in sort of who's going to walk away with this championship. Doug, I can't even imagine a scenario where a school called Florida Atlantic University wins the NCAA tournament. You know, the funny thing about Florida Atlantic is they're technically the cinderella at this point even though that was a 30 win team in the regular 30 plus i think like 32 wins or something in the regular season but they're technically the cinderella people don't like fau because they don't act like they've been there before and they rub a lot of people the wrong way in how they win i think a lot of people will just say hey they're lucky and they think that they're good and they're kind of that team and so 
I, I know quite a few people who want to see them humbled. Maybe they're just bitter because FAU is a team that busted their bracket or knocked their team out of the tournament. Um, but kind of an interesting Cinderella in the sense that it's not like George Mason where the whole country is uniting around FAU right now. I don't know that the country's uniting around any one team or player. Uh, it's more of just kind of a general interest. And maybe that's going to be detrimental to the to the ratings that you're talking about. Uh, but FAU being in the Final Four, that's a school where if, I think a lot of people probably before the tournament didn't know they had Division One sports. Not at all, right? I mean, and again, you'd like go through the list of the NCAA champions that have occurred and think about what's going on with college football. Could have a San Diego State winning a national championship, could have a Florida, you know, an FAU. You know, one of the things, look, I'm, I'm nothing but rooting for those schools oh, because yeah. I, I love, you know, I do not my, want to see UConn or Miami no. win this. No, <laughs> no way. But, you know, it's like that's, and I want to see what happens next, right? Because, I mean, in terms of all the Cinderella's we've had over the years, they never get it all the way done, do they? I mean, I don't know who no. the sort of the closest Butler. thing Butler. is to have actually won it. Butler. Okay. Butler Duke, Gordon Hayward, full court <laughs> shot at the end of the game, rimmed out, would have won the game against Duke, would have been the greatest moment in sports history, and they were that close. <laughs> Brad Stevens is the coach. So that's the closest I've seen. But yeah, George Mason fizzled out. UNBC fizzled out. I mean, every year there's a team and, and they, you know, they tend to fizzle out at the very latest in the final four round. And so FAU, again, this is a this isn't like a team that didn't win games during the season and snuck into the tournament. They dominated Conference USA, which to that point, Mike, I just want to say Conference USA should get more than one spot in the tournament. Because every single year, the one team from Conference USA that makes it goes on a run. They at least make the round of 32 and pull an upset in the first round. This year, it was Florida Atlantic. I'm a UAB guy. I grew up in Birmingham. I used to go to all the UAB games. I always thought they were the best uh, basketball program in the state of Alabama, which at the time, they definitely were. Now, probably not the case, with obviously, with Alabama and Auburn uh, ramping up their basketball programs. But UAB had a year this year and a team that a lot of people in Birmingham thought was capable of going on a March run. And unfortunately, due to, you know, definitely a top 64 team in the country, but due to the structure of the tournament, conferences like Conference USA, even if they have a top four team in the country in their conference, they only get one bid. And that second team, even if they're like the number 35 team, they're not going to get a shot. And that's part of March Madness that's a little frustrating for those mid-majors where the regular season doesn't really matter. All that matters is the conference tournament because the winner of that is going to go to March Madness. And I know UAB had a season a couple years back where they actually didn't have a great season, went on a run in the tournament, won their Conference USA tournament, and won the first round of March. And you know FAU was probably the other team that got left out that probably had 28 wins in the season that year or however many um, and so, you know, it's conferences like that. I think we learn in the tournament, maybe we're putting too much weight into the big 10 and giving them too many teams and maybe conferences like conference USA aren't getting enough love. I don't, I don't have a lot of response to that. Uh, yeah, it's cause you know, it, it really, it does speak to the economics of the, to the economics of the sport and to, you know, the, the com level of competitive balance, the economics of the sport, um, 
not just the economics of the sport, but the nature of the the nature of and importance of brands to mm-hmm. to, to college sports. Um, and it seems like you know, like, even if you're saying that, and, and look, I get the perspective. It seems unimaginable that the Big Ten gets left out of anything, right? Or the <laughs> I'm FCC not left out. out. No, no, but, <laughs> but it's you know, I, I think you know, just when I, as I think about how this stuff, look, it, I mean, that was a real beauty, you know. In some ways, when college basketball and college football's brand equity were built, and probably more so college basketball, it was uh, you know, this stuff is built over generations, and so you think about. You know, I think about like where, when I was, you know, grow up in Chicago, the DePauls and the Marquettes and the Loyolas. And, you know, these these places had nice little basketball programs. And, you know, sometimes it, like DePaul had a great basketball program for a, for a while. Mm-hmm. And they, they go from independence to being in conferences and with all the conference realignment. You know, it's like college basketball, I guess, in some ways kind of feels like it's all shook up to me. Like as you start talking about Conference, US, U, uh, conference USA. I actually had to look it up to see who was in it. Yeah. So it's, um, and it is a, you, you look, and, and all I could think about is like, well, if I'm putting the, together this conference, I can imagine the the steps they're going through of trying to get some regional, you know, to try and hit certain markets, to kind of to have a decent footprint and also have enough kind of like schools and cities. Like, well, we got Birmingham with UAB. Mm-hmm. But it's it's a it's a tough uphill battle at this point when you think about the utter dominance of the Big Ten, you know, going out and getting look, looking forward, the Big Ten's adding U, USC in football and UCLA in basketball, right? And of course they're <laughs> adding them in both sports, but uh, yeah, you get what I'm saying is the uh, the the consolidation. Look, at least in college basketball, they let they let, you know, they let Florida Atlanta have a, have a shot, right? Yeah, they give them a shot, and you don't see that in college football, maybe in the future. Of course, I don't think it would fare the same way in college football, and I think we all know that. Uh, But with basketball, I guess my point is, at what point, do when we're doing strength of schedule, it's usually, essentially, if you trail it back, it roots in preseason rankings, which aren't really based on anything, and it's kind of more based on perception of conference and the big 10 has kind of over the last couple years had this perception of elite when maybe it hasn't performed that well in the tournament and in you know some conferences that have this perception as tiny and and minuscule and insignificant actually translate really well when they're playing against you know elite teams from other conferences and so i'm just curious if at any point somebody takes a step back and is like maybe we're maybe we're ranking them wrong from the get-go and that's kind of skewing our views of these teams and teams like Florida Atlantic, who, like I have said many times, won over 30 games in the regular season. Maybe it wasn't just because their competition was terrible. Maybe they actually were playing teams that were more on par with, you know, and I'm not saying their, their competition is as good as a Big Ten schedule, but I'm just saying maybe that maybe it's closer than we think and maybe some of those other teams should be should get a look as well um, because clearly you could be the number five team in the country right now and not be in the tournament if you're in Conference USA. Well, Doug, and at this point, I have to think, we're having a reasoned conversation. You know, we're being analytical, thinking about the the incentives and the structures. But, you know, then I have to catch myself and go, yeah, but last year it was 
and Kansas. And the conclusion was that, you know, all this, all this shift IL and transfer portal had solidified the control of the power players this year with a very different group, San Diego, Florida Atlantic, you know, UConn that, uh, you know, so let, let's, let's just watch it play out, I guess. Yeah. yeah. And I also want to piggyback on that and say, I, I kind of am of the opinion that this year's an outlier, which I, I mean, we all know that, but specifically in regards to those COVID seniors, the fifth year seniors, that is such an advantage. And I saw it like watching Georgia football this year and kind of wondering in retrospect, would Georgia have won the last two national championships? Had it not had a 24, 25 year old quarterback, had it not had veterans, you know, our Georgia's safety was a guy who sat behind Richard LeCount for three years and then started for two years. And it's like you basically have an NFL veteran leading your defense. You basically have an NFL veteran quarterback. And that gives you such an advantage compared to the years where you have a true freshman or sophomore or junior at those positions, which is usually the case for a school like Georgia. And with college basketball, you know, I don't know that we're ever going to see 10 fifth-year seniors in the Final Four ever again. And so when that changes, does it does the balance go back to the kind of top heavy uh younger teams that maybe have a couple upperclassmen but are led by young guys and i don't know we'll see i i just think that those teams even pre-covid kind of struggled like zion williamson and rj barrett did not make the final four and that year a virginia team with kyle guy and uh, Jerome and you know a, a bunch of older basketball players won the national championship. They did have one, you know, uh, DeAndre Hunter, one lottery pick player on that team. And maybe that's the formula: having a number of veteran guys who have played together, and, as well as a little bit, you know, a sprinkle of that elite talent, younger talent, uh, to chip in and give you an athletic advantage. I, that's personally, if I'm if I'm Duke, if I'm UNC, that's kind of how I'm recruiting, trying to go for a lot of guys that are going to be there, and you know, one or two a year that are going to be lottery picks. Uh, but we'll see the approach that those schools take, and, and we'll see what what translates in the Final Four years post COVID. And I'll speculate that it probably is something where you got to move down the rankings and try and keep guys, you know, when you add in the transfers and try and keep guys for five years. You know, yeah, there's four, I mean, four years four, would be great. Four, four and five years. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, it's always been that notion, right? That the guys, the teams with the senior guards are going to play well into March. And I suspect that becomes, that becomes ever more true, right? Guys that have four years in your program or five years. I mean, again, the idea of red, red shirting seems crazy now, right? But five <laughs> years in the program and hitting, you know, threes under pressure, probably the, probably the, the long-term business plan for these places. Okay, Doug. So moving ahead, you mentioned an older quarterback who I think is older than, um, well, today we're talking about sort of reviewing the <laughs> NFC. East. And I want to say, was Stetson Bennett older than uh, Jalen Hurts? Is older, I guess? Not was. I don't know about that one because my f- Senior year at Georgia, Jalen Hurts, I think Stetson was a freshman and Jalen Hurts was a sophomore. So I think he's right. He might be older, though. Maybe there's like, maybe Jalen Hurts, maybe Stetson was uh, held back. Maybe he was redshirted. <laughs> Kids in my school used to do that. Hey, Jalen Hurts is 24 years old, Doug. 
Okay, so yeah, I was so Stetson's a year older, um, but I mean, right, right, right there, uh, you know, one of the older quarterbacks in the NFC East. If he ends up in that division, of course, Dak Prescott's a little bit older than him. I'm not sure where Daniel Jones, Daniel Jones is, but we'll talk about Daniel Jones. Well, okay, so the, you know the, the NFC East last year, Jalen Hurts. And again, I'll, I'll sort of give my quick preseason view on these guys. Jalen Hurts strikes me as a very average quarterback going into the year, has a breakthrough season. I don't, I don't know that I'm. I haven't run the numbers yet. I don't know that I'm fully convinced that Hurt. And I, I'll, I'll be careful here because everyone gets very upset. I don't know that Hurts. I don't know where Hurts ranks in terms of NFL quarterbacks. I don't know if he's a top ten guy. I don't think he's a top five guy. Um, but he may end up being kind of a top 10 to 15 guy. So he's a very interesting player that had a fantastic year. Um, number two on the list, Dak Prescott. Dak has had some great statistical years. Last year was not one of them. Um, being the, the position he plays, uh, Doug, I don't know. You know, Dallas Cowboy quarterback might be the biggest job in all of professional sports. Uh, I, American professional sports. There's probably, you know, probably playing striker for Man U means even more. Right. But, but uh, Prescott, you know, uh, will always be under the microscope. Always sort of be, you know, questions about him as long as he plays in Dallas. We had a player you've paid a lot of attention to, Daniel Jones, have in some ways, from a business perspective, a strange year where it seemed like they didn't want him, but then signed him to a nice deal afterwards. And then the Washington Commanders with a complete washout of a season in terms of quarterbacks and likely to draft a draft a guy in the first round coming up in, in this year's in this year's NFL draft, or 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 make a trade. Oh, okay. You mentioned there's a rumor going around just as we were turning the mics on. So what's the rumor? Lamar or Jackson. This is no rumor. Lamar Jackson tweeted himself. He requested a trade from the Baltimore Ravens. And, you know, it's right down the road from Baltimore. That's Washington, D.C. I know some Commanders fans who'd be pretty excited about that. Yeah, that's a, and that's a tough one, right? Because Washington, the Washington football franchise has, you know, an economic situation that can potentially, you know, afford to put up the money. You know, part of the issue with guaranteed money is the owner has to be wealthy enough to put the money into escrow, right? Yeah. And, and so the Washington Commanders, and I don't know Daniel Snyder's relative position amongst the billionaires, but just the nature of that brand and the market they're in would seem to have the financial resources to do it. And I also think, and again, you know, you can push back on me if you want the commanders might be one of these franchises that is desperate enough to overpay for a Lamar Jackson. And so we could see that going to, I could see that happening. That'd be a good fit. I could too. And Dan Snyder has a history of trading the farm for an athletic quarterback. RG three. He has a history of some of the worst free agent signings. Well, and that's another thing that makes me think because you've been so, you know, looking at, I I hope people understand because I've seen some hate for uh, discussion regarding Lamar Jackson. It's not that Lamar Jackson's not a good football player. It's looking at it from a economical standpoint and with scarce resources, is this the best way to use them? 
And historically, I think on this show, the opinion is that that's not the case. And so with that said, the Washington commanders have slash R words slash uh, football team slash. Yeah, I'm trying to think of all their names. They have the commies. They have a history of making those moves. Where where you look at the numbers and you look at I do you remember was was it Nadamu Kung Su or there there was some uh, uh, Hainsworth Albert, Albert Hainsworth <laughs> that's who it was that they paid him crazy money crazy money to come and, in past his prime and he essentially retired from active <laughs> service after he he got that money said <laughs> <laughs> in class as an example something called the winner's curse yeah where the the team that overvalues the player is the one that gets them. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that, and I think if you talk to Washington football fans, that is their frustration with that ownership is that they've always gotten those things wrong and just crippled, crippled the franchise. The thing about fans, though, is that I know the Washington Commies fans that I, that I'm friends with will sell themselves on the idea if it happens, just like they did with RG3, just like they did with Albert Hainsworth. And, Doug, they're not, instantly relevant. They'd be absolutely, I mean, that, and that's the, the key, right? Suddenly there's excitement around this franchise. Otherwise, exactly. And, but, otherwise, but Doug, Doug, it's Lamar Jackson or Will Levis. <laughs> that's a conversation for another day. <laughs> but I'm, not, I'm not saying who's going to be the better quarterback, even. I'm just saying, in terms of the media environment and the fan excitement. Well, yeah. it's exciting. And as a fan, you sell yourself on that. But when it doesn't work, when it doesn't lead to Super Bowls, you flip the script and you say, I knew that was idiotic. I knew that wasn't a good move. And we need to fire the guy who did it, even though I was super stoked when it happened. I was that guy, Mike, with the I've talked about this before on the show. The Brooklyn Nets, they brought in Joe yeah. Johnson, Darren Williams, Kevin Garnett, Paul Pierce, traded the farm. Terrible move long term. You could look at it and say these guys are past their prime. There, you know, this is a second round exit in the playoffs at best. And that's exactly what happened. But at the time, it felt like the Nets are relevant. They could, they could, they're the talk of the NBA for a hot second. And we got to just buy in here. And, and in retrospect, it's the worst GM in NBA history and it's the worst trade I've ever seen. And, and that's why we, that's why we record these things, Doug. (laughs) (laughs) So, so I get my analysis of Lamar Jackson can be reduced to, some unfortunate things that sound a little bit like trash talking and I can get called out on this. But <laughs> the commanders were eight and eight. I mean, think about that. You know, eight, eight and eight, that, that's one or two games away from the, the playoffs. And that's got to feel absolutely desperate in that, in that building. I, I mean, again, with all the controversies and all the struggles and all the investigations, I suspect you're right. Now, if you are the general manager of the Washington Commanders and the price is you're going to have to give up, you know, at least one first round draft pick, probably a package of draft picks, including one first round pick. And Jackson wants $250 million in guaranteed money. You're also betting your career. Now, for the Washington Commanders, the owner probably wants you to, you know, may well be in a, a state where, I mean, the, the attendance at that place has been terrible. If you look at attendance rates, it's it's truly dropped off. It might be time to make that bet. But if it doesn't, then I, I think you're, as the owner, you almost got to sell the franchise and just move on to your next great mission in life. 
How many of those situations has Dan Snyder survived, though? <laughs> people, people hate that man in D.C., okay. by the way. I have really, lots of family. I know, but can we, he be having a good time with it at this point? Yeah. I mean, I, I mean <laughs> you know when uh, in Ted Lasso, when the woman owner takes over for the male owner, her ex-husband, and wants to run the program into the ground? I think you could. I think there could be a theory about Dan Snyder. Like I don't know who previously owned the Washington Football Team, or or who he knows who loves the Washington Football Team. Maybe he has an ex-wife who <laughs> adores that team and follows them religiously. And he, this whole thing has been one giant troll job. Just throwing that That's, out there. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, you know, I mean, in some ways, it's like the data. The data probably fits that story. Uh, <laughs> it's probably much more an example of just extreme ego, and I, you know, and I, I can run any kind of business. Uh, I think get drafting Will Levis would be the move that would make people the most mad. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> what? Because no, with I mean, Lamar Jackson, there's at least that short-term excitement. And and again, if if the storyline is that they decide to pass on trading for Lamar Jackson and then draft Will Levis, and and again, the the tough thing is from a football standpoint, that might be the right thing to do because you also have to remember in all this that Will Levis would come in making four million dollars a year versus fifty million or sixty million dollars a year. And you know that that cost-controlled quarterback, that ability to take the rest of the resource, the rest of that money, invest in free agents on a team that was already eight and eight and would be playing the you know the the last place schedule. You know what I mean? It, it in some ways when you start to lay it out logically, the conservative approach, the non-exciting approach, might be the right thing to do. So the yeah. Washington Commanders will be signing Lamar Jackson within the. Yeah. Um, will Levis to me, not to go on too much of a tangent here, but to me he's like ceiling is Ryan Tannehill. Like I just think he's a bust waiting to happen. That's just my personal opinion. Some of our uh, some of our social followers have raised some good points recently that because we we've there's a little debate. <laughs> a little debate, Mike, that, you know, uh, Mike made a comment a couple okay. weeks ago. So Doug is claiming that we are the only place out there that has social followers that actually raise good points and just don't I complain. Didn't claim, I didn't claim that. No, it's, it's, there, there's just some discussion, Mike, on the Fanalytics channels. Where, okay. When Mike made a claim that a lot of these busts are guys who get drafted based on their ability to throw it across their body running left on their pro day or their crazy combine. And we were That was in regards to Anthony Richardson we were talking about. And uh, several followers made a point that I wanted to, to bring to the podcast on their behalf. Can I defend <laughs> myself in, the, in, in, in advance? Sure, sure. That is an observation purely based on anecdotal, anecdotal observations. Okay. No data whatsoever on that one. <laughs> okay. Okay. The, so the, the counter to that anecdotal observation is that a lot of these top quarterbacks in recent years have been guys who maybe weren't quote unquote winners in college and who weren't finished products, who were kind of more project guys. I think Patrick Mahomes was viewed that way. I think Josh Allen was viewed as this massive guy who probably threw too many interceptions, but had a rocket arm and a lot of athletic ability. 
and with the right coaching staff who felt like they could mold him in who, into who they wanted him to be, he could be a superstar. And so I think that's the argument in favor of drafting a guy like Will Levis, in favor of drafting a guy like Anthony Richardson. I'm not saying that's what I would do. I'm just simply putting that line of thought out there that, you know, when in, in regards to this Washington football team situation, I would looking like to, at a Will... I would like yeah. to respond. <laughs> okay. Okay, so in some ways this brings us back to the whole kind of Bill Parcells rules, right? Right, and, right. And in some ways, right, the notion to, to some of Parcells rules, are, it boils down to things like you got to be a winner, you got to be accurate, you've got to have experience. A lot of the busts out there have been, a lot of the more historical generational busts have been guys that had essentially one good season, right? So they didn't have the prolonged excellence. Yeah. It, and so you talk about, let's say, a Ryan Leaf, or, uh, and I looked up the name, Jamarcus Russell, as <laughs> yeah. maybe the two sort of, and frankly, that was always my concern with the 49ers and Trey Lance. Yeah. So, so they, they, they are probably making a, a good point. Uh, it's just, you know, sort of two things can be true. We can talk about sort of the media hype from, you know, ESPN covering Sam Darnold's pro day at USC, and he's throwing the ball great in the rain and sort of this lack of prolonged winning or ex experience at the top of their game in college. So, yeah, I think the Parcells rules really favor a guy like, I mean, the guy they really favor is Bryce Young. Um, I think they favor Stetson Bennett. And I, he's one that I, I have never been a huge believer as far as like a starting NFL quarterback. <laughs> but, and Georgia fans will hate me for saying that. But, you know, but they don't favor a Will Levis or Anthony Richardson. And it just, if I'm Washington, I look at Will Levis or Anthony Richardson. And it's, you, you said a couple of weeks back, like with Richardson, there's like a 10% chance he ends up being a guy that wins you multiple Super Bowls and there's a 50% chance he gets you fired or whatever. And I think Will Levis is in that same ballpark where it's like, could he develop and become Josh Allen? Is there a chance that that happens? Does he have the physical tools for that to happen? I think so. I don't think it's going to happen. But would you rather spend $4 million for a 10% chance at Josh Allen or $40 million for a guy who's definitely going to have you kind of right on the fringe of the playoffs uh but has an injury history who seems to be on a downward trajectory for the rest of his career in Lamar Jackson and but he keeps but there's a higher floor much higher floor with Lamar Jackson and his ceiling's really high we've seen him play at MVP level so I don't want to disregard that but it does seem like the numbers seem to indicate that running quarterbacks at this point in their careers you know their best days are behind them um, well, that, so that's that's the decision for a team like Washington. And I think this kind of highlights one of the limitations of analytics. Yeah. And how sometimes analytics might tell you to do something, but the realities of human relationships, uh, brand management, you know, managing your loyal customer fan base preclude you doing, you know, what make, might make sense. What might make sense is that you take a first round pick, you know, uh, you take a quarterback in the early rounds or the first round or the early rounds of the NFL draft every three years until you find some guy that's going to play for 12 years and truly be at the top of the game. And then you don't draft one for a while. And then you don't draft one for a while. Yeah. <laughs> you sort of play the controlled quarterback game and you kind of go, you know, maybe this guy will break through. I mean, 
we, but I don't think we've ever really seen it done, right? I mean, the last time we had something close to it was the Arizona Cardinals who had, what was his name? Rosen? Josh and Rosen. Jo- Josh Rosen. And, and then Murray. they moved him out pretty quickly for, for Kyler Mur- Murray. Yeah. It might have been rational to have both those guys on the roster and keep them for as long as possible. Now, this brings us, usually we go from the top of these divisions down to the bottom. We started at the bottom this week. <clears throat> the New York Giants have a guy that, you know, after how about four years in the league, started to show some signs of breaking through, but maybe breaking through to the point of being a better than average quarterback rather than a great quarterback. And so for that organization, it's exactly what you're talking about. Do you want to have a guy that's, what did he get, 90 million guaranteed, I think? Something in that, Some, something like that. I'll look it up in a. I'll look it up in a second. But a decent amount of guaranteed money, not a crazy amount of guaranteed money. Um, the Giants were nine and seven. Are they locking themselves into having a journeyman quarter, journeyman type quarterback that has just enough upside that they can talk themselves into he can be Eli Manning and win us a Super Bowl yep. or two over the next decade? Yeah, I think Daniel Jones is very fortunate to be with a franchise that won a quarterback who was perceived very similarly at at this point in his career and won a Super Bowl Um, because the Giants organization doesn't feel like they need to have an Aaron Rodgers or a Tom Brady to win Super Bowls. They feel like they need an Eli Manning. And I, I think the verdict's still out, but Daniel Jones could be an Eli Manning. Okay, Doug, so the deal was four years, $160 million with a $92 million signing bonus. I mean, I'll take it. I'll, I don't think he's, I, I don't think it's going to be worth his time to look at the price tags when he goes shopping. Um, so he, he's set. <laughs> Daniel Jones is set. And the Giants are, as much as it's not like a Lamar Jackson deal, they're also, it's big enough of a deal that they're not going to be able to take a look at any other quarterbacks the next few years, right? Like they're locked into Daniel Jones. And so they could, I mean, with a cost controlled rookie quarterback, well, it's like, I guess um, Jalen hurts second round or something, right? You could play this, you know, you could do some exploration, but, but again, you get into the weirdness of, are you offending this guy that you just gave $90 million to? Yeah. I think Jalen hurts is a good example of a team. Like the Eagles were pretty locked into Carson Wentz at the time when they drafted him. And so he might be a that might be the closest example we have to kind of your scenario in recent memory. Um, and over the years, we've had teams draft quarterbacks pretty high that didn't need a quarterback simply because of how valuable the position is. The New England Patriots drafted Jimmy Garoppolo. Uh, the the person Aaron Rodgers with uh, was Jordan Love with Jordan Love, and even before Aaron Rodgers. They had Brett Favre and they drafted Aaron Rodgers. And so that's kind of been part of their philosophy this whole time. And this worked really well, uh, of course, with Brett Favre and Aaron Rodgers. Uh, seamless transition there. Jordan Love, <laughs> TBD. But we'll see on that one. But, um, but yeah, Daniel Jones with the Giants. I mean, I've said a hundred times that we've yet to see him with a good offensive line or good receivers. And so he can do... Like I'm impressed by Daniel Jones' ability to make to have an average outcome with below average surrounding talent, and that's kind of been that's kind of what he did this year that was impressive to people. But okay. that doesn't mean that he has the ability to make with average talent 
great outcomes, which is what Joe Burrow's done, I think, in my opinion, or with or even with great surrounding talent to have great outcomes. Like that might be his ceiling. We don't know. So I still he's kind of weird because he's been in the league for four years and it feels like the verdict is still out on Daniel Jones. The encouraging thing for Giants fans is that Brian Dayball, we talk a lot about coach quarterback pairs. That coach quarterback pair seemed to bring massive improvement to his game. And I think people expect more improvement, more momentum in that direction with Dayball and the continuity with Daniel Jones. Okay, can I say this? I'll make two <laughs> Yeah. Jones, uh, 15 touchdowns last year, five interceptions. So a, a nice ratio, but... Yeah. Oh, he had some rushing touchdowns too. Yeah, but I mean, throwing for 15 touchdowns suggests yeah. to me that you're, you're... And actually, I mean, you're looking, looking at it, he's kind of... He's never been a high-volume touchdown guy, and I think that's probably the, the thing that suggests that his ceiling might not be all that high. Um, the other thing is, as a uh, New York Giants... And again, you read, you mentioned Ted Lasso, right? It's like, mm-hmm. the, you know, there's a, there's competition between these clubs. There's rivalries between these clubs. In that case, yeah. it's an ex-husband and or an ex-wife. And uh, I, I guess they're both ex-husband and ex-wife. But, you know, for the Giants, are you suddenly, you you know, we, we sometimes I'll talk about how there's usually a second team and from a brand per, brand equity perspective in any city, if Aaron Rodgers does end up with the New York Jets... Is Daniel Jones suddenly really unexciting? And you're, you know, the glamour is <laughs> not there. I think he's already unexciting to a lot of people. Um, as a Giants guy myself, I'm, I'm not mad about. I'm, I like. I feel like the verdict's still out long term on Daniel Jones. A lot of people <laughs> compare him to Kirk Cousins, and I think he's more athletic. He's a more athletic Kirk Cousins. I don't think that's a bad thing. That you know, to have a guy. Because he's getting paid like, I think his pay is about relative to where he ranks in quarterbacks. So you're not paying him Lamar Jackson money. And I think Giants fans uh, as a whole would have been really excited about Lamar Jackson coming in. but Or Aaron Rodgers, for example. But long term, I don't know if that's the best move for the franchise. My concern with Daniel Jones was that he was going to go to a team like San Francisco or a team that had the pieces in play and really light it up. And the Giants were going to always regret that. Like when Brett Favre left the Falcons or when, uh, and we've seen that Drew Brees leaving San Diego. Of course, he was already an elite quarterback. Um, but Kirk Cousins leaving Washington and going to the Vikings and all of a sudden being an MVP caliber quarterback. And so I, I thought that was a possibility for Daniel Jones and out of fear. And so I'm kind of relieved that we're not going to see that happen. Yeah, and I mean, I'll, from my perspective, I'll bottom line it. I think that, and I don't know what the perception is of the Giants. The Giants have done the smart thing, you know, signing him to a moderate contract in terms of both length and dollars. I do suspect that they'll probably invest in, you know, some additional quarterback talent, right? Because mm-hmm. the, the, look, the rookie, the rookies are essentially free in a way, right? In in terms of you know four or five million dollars versus forty or fifty million dollars, so. They seem to have done the, the smart thing, the, the non-emotional thing. The next guy on our list is Dak Prescott. Now, Prescott has always been an interesting guy, right? Because he came in as a, as a mid-round draft pick. So Prescott never, got the, Prescott never got the money. 
Yeah. Right. And so he had to go through all sorts of, you know, tribulations to get the Cowboys to pay him. There was an injury. He came back from the injury and probably, and statistically had maybe one of the best years of his career. This last year really fell off quite a bit. And again, sort of, let's see what the, the numbers are the numbers are the touchdowns to interceptions went from 37 and 10 and 21, 37 touchdowns um, to 23 touchdowns in 2022, and interceptions went up from 10 to 15. Um, so Prescott, and again, he's playing in this ultra high pressurized environment. He's, we've also seen uh, Ezekiel Elliott really drop off in terms of performance you know dallas is clearly a team that is not interested in having anything except the you know the ultimate success prescott's a top 10 top 12 guy i think at this point and he's not going to get the cowboys to he's not going to get he's, he's not going to get the cowboys to the land of roger staubach or of troy aikman and so i i think what we're going to see the narrative that's going to play through with him over and over again is is it time for the Cowboys to move on? I think he's got just two years left in that deal because I think it was just a four-year deal. Yeah. So very quickly, we're going to come up on another cycle of a contract that he's going to want to get paid. The media is going to say they got to pay him. He's the best Cowboy quarterback in a long time. And you know the number is going to go from $150 million on the last one to what, $220 million for the next four years? $250 million? So again... Prescott's an interesting guy, very high pressurized situation, but probably a guy that's locking Jerry Jones into a place where he doesn't want to be. Yeah. And I think Cowboy, I, I got a sense from Cowboys fans this year that they're a little bit jealous of the Eagles situation because it seems like Dak Prescott's the more talented prospect than Jalen Hurts. Like, I think a lot of people thought Jalen Hurts was going to be a poor man's Dak Prescott. And Jalen Hurts has that leadership ability, that kind of sixth sense, that it factor that Dak Prescott has never showed in the biggest moments. And so, I, you know, I, I think that Cowboys fans, I mean, I remember two years ago when there was all this drama about were they going to re-sign them, were they going to trade them? And I think they're back in that situation. Let's talk about, can I, let's talk about these guys in parallel then. Because I think okay. that's a yeah. good thing. So, um, Hertz. I mean, that's had, their that's their competition, really. They, I mean, that's their biggest competition. Hertz really. has one more year before he becomes an unrestricted free agent. So, you know, and and Philadelphia is paying him about four million dollars next year, four and a half million dollars. <laughs> yeah. Now, Hertz, you know, again, maybe the perception is he's, you know, got great leadership and played, you know, really some clutch football this year. I look. I've heard people say that he was the best, better quarterback in the in the Super Bowl. He threw for 22 touchdowns and six interceptions, but that's the first time he's thrown for 20 touchdowns in his career. Um, so he's a he's a guy that is in in some ways a one hit wonder. Mm -hmm. uh, and just as we might be concerned about one hit wonders at the college ranks, we probably should be concerned about one hit wonders at the NFL rank as well. Okay, um, Vince Young comes to mind. I remember thinking he was going to, uh, Colin Kaepernick comes to mind. He tore it up. Uh, Carson Wentz comes to mind. Had a, I mean, I remember people talking about him being MVP of the league. Um, I, 
I mean, on a smaller scale, like Taylor Heineke had some big games. This year, the uh, Cooper Rush had some big games, and people were starting to get excited. And late in the season, uh, his name escapes me, the 49ers, like fourth-string quarterback, who went on a little tear there as well. And so we've we've seen our share of one-hit wonders that didn't sustain the long-term success. I think like a good one-hit wonder was Tony Romo. He kind of had that special season, but he really was a solid quarterback for a long time and i think he still would be if he were playing football um so it, you know that that's i don't know that's definitely uh i i think the verdict's out long term on jalen hurts i think we've got to see him sustain that success and i think philly probably wants to see that in order to invest in him in the same way you know he's probably going to demand lamar jackson money like after leading them to the super bowl after the year that he had this year so We'll we'll see what happens with Jalen Hurts and Philly. Maybe Philly decides to uh, lock him in this offseason, try to sign him long term. That that'd be a bit of a gamble on their end, but to to wait is a bit of a gamble as well as we've seen. Yeah, I want to. That is a good question. I, I don't know anything about if there are rumors of an extension for Jalen Hurts, but he, you know, he was the biggest. If we want to think about sort of quarterbacks as stocks, he was probably the biggest mover last year. You know, yeah. I, I, we might argue that like Trevor Lawrence made the biggest leap forward, but I think almost everyone thought it was coming. Yeah. Jalen Hurts leap was at the same level of, of, of Lawrence, but it was also, but it was also ended up taking the Eagles to the Super Bowl, Right. And and you think about how big of a disaster the, the NFC East was perceived to be just a, a year or two in the past. And suddenly, you know, the Eagles are, you know, the top one or two teams in the league. They've got a quarterback that seems they can play with everyone. It's probably tempting as the management of the Eagles to say, we got our guy, let's lock him in. But, you know, I, I think you got to see it. And again, I could see social media crucifying me for this one as well. I think you got to see more, right? You, you can't just, you can't put all those dollars out. And, and look, to some extent, Hertz might want to wait on the contract as well. Because what yeah. kind of deal do you give him? A Daniel Jones like deal, or a you know a Lamar Jackson? Lamar Jackson, or well, Lamar to see what he gets. So is I he? I know a, what he's demanding. What he's demanding. I think yeah. Jalen Hurts, if he has another year like this last year, I think he can demand that Lamar Jackson deal, and I think that teams are willing to do it. I think so they too. view him as a they view him as a Super Bowl quarterback, right? And, and so, and it's just a matter of so if you're the Eagles, you got this dilemma of. You know, maybe we're willing to invest ninety million in guaranteed dollars to you, but you probably want a hundred and fifty minimum, and maybe you're eyeing two hundred, right? Mm-hmm. And look, this could be one of the legacies of Lamar Jackson. Is he now in a position where he's going to roll the dice because he doesn't want a hundred and forty million or a hundred and fifty million dollars? He wants the two hundred or the two hundred and fifty million dollars, and he's relatively qu- close to to getting to that point. It would be, you know, this this could be Lamar Jackson's biggest impact on the game. Look, we, we've already talked about the AFC North, but I suspect that Lamar Jackson, everyone is watching every step of the way here in terms of what he's going to get, the way teams are reluctant to negotiate him with the franchise tag and not wanting to give up two picks. Um, <laughs> this issue of, you know, him trying to reset the quarterback market and all the NFL teams wanting to reset the quarterback market from Deshaun, Deshaun Watson downward. He wants to set it up. <laughs> right. Right. 
Yeah, and I also think the fact his name's just going to come up when we're talking about different divisions because he has the potential to totally change the landscape of any division that he ends up in. So in this case, like it, it, perception's kind of Philly, Dallas, New York, Washington. But if Washington lands Lamar Jackson, an eight and eight team, it's you know last year the analytics really aren't that diff that much different than Cleveland when they added Deshaun Watson, where the perception was okay. Now they've got a you know they've been winning eight games with mediocre talent. Now they have a potential MVP caliber quarterback, and this could take them to the next level. I think Washington is a team to keep an eye on, where it's like they could be favorited in the NFC East next year. Doug, I want to you know let me ask you: pick this division from first to fourth. I mean, as I gotta go right, Philly. As of as right now, yeah. Right now, I got Philly first, Washington last. Um, you know, I'll say it. I'll go with I'll go with the G Men over Dallas. I'll okay. go with the Giants second in and, the division. And if Wild Lamar Park. Jackson ends up playing for the Washington Commanders, where do they? Where it's do a they, loaded division. It's a loaded division at that point, and I kind pick, of still you pick them one, or you pick them two then. No, I kind of could see I could see a Cleveland situation like last year where they get all the hype and going into the season people are talking about them as favorites. <laughs> and, okay. And they end up third and Dallas is fourth or or the Giants are fourth. But yeah, I, I still see them I, I don't see them passing Philly for sure, uh, with what Philly has going right now. Philly is a well oiled machine that I expect to see competing for Super Bowls for years to come. Okay, Doug, we're over time. So let's do this real quick. We are currently watching two shows, The Mandalorian and Ted Lasso. I am watching them both eagerly. I think The Mandalorian has figured some stuff out. They seem a little bit more geared towards at least starting each episode with some classic Star Wars action. Some of the plot points are probably not where they should be in terms of having something where it's compelling from week to week. Ted Lasso... I'm also going to say, look, they returned to the field. Some focus on the players, which yeah. I think, which I think wa- was helpful. Both of those on a 10-point scale for me are still hovering around that six-and-a-half kind of level of I'm going to keep watching, but I'm not, I'm not loving them the way I... Let me say this. I'm not loving them the way I want to love them. Yeah, I'll just say that Ted Lasso, I thought, had a nice bounce-back episode, and has it has me back in. I'm back like... I'm locked in every Wednesday waiting to see what happens with this franchise. Uh, The Mandalorian has had moments. I think it's those flashback scenes or those cuts to Coruscant where that feel like Star Wars that feel special. Um, But as a whole, I don't know that anyone really knows what the overarching, like what the story arc is for the season. It's kind of all over the place. And I don't know what the objective is or what the real conflict is and what uh, the characters are setting out to achieve. And so I think that's a criticism I've seen across the board. We'll see if they tie it all together. Uh, I know there's a lot of people skeptical about that. I know there's a lot of people optimistic about that. Uh, but th- those are two very passionate fandoms that are very opinionated about those two projects. And, you know, I like I said, I'm feeling a little more optimistic about Ted Lasso now after last week's episode. The Mandalorian, I enjoyed seeing the plot twist of the year, which was the Jar Jar Binks actor playing the role of the Jedi that saved <laughs> spoiler alert uh, turn it off if you haven't seen it yet that saved Grogu from the Jedi Temple during Order 66 uh, that was that was very okay. surprising that is too aggressive of a spoiler okay <laughs> <laughs> I told I gave him an alert I gave him an alert 
It's just uh, like yeah. the Jar Jar Binks guy playing a Jedi. It would have been better, though, if it had been Jar Jar himself. You I'll say what? that. In the world of streaming, you know, the spoilers are out. The, you know, it's all over the internet. Spoilers no, are yeah, out. It's all, it's all over, and it's been a week. Yeah. Like, you've had a week. Come on now. I think okay. Succession is the big show right now, though. Succession is probably the next one we got to keep up with because it's getting a lot of buzz. Has, at the moment, 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. Doug, the other thing is there's got to be a return to the theater for me for something other than Fast and the Furious, and that's John Wick 4. Okay, <laughs> so we'll, we'll wrap it there. As always, more content at www.fandomanalytics.com.